Father God, please give us ears that are attentive to your word. By the power of your spirit, please open our eyes to see, uh, to see eternal realities and to live our lives in accordance with them. For Jesus' glory we pray. Amen. Uh, so one of the sayings that I, I think is now pretty common in our culture is that uh, if you want to succeed in life, uh, you have to play the long game. I don't know if you've heard that, uh, that saying before. What does it mean? It means that uh, if you want to be successful, uh, what you have to do is settle on the long-term vision for your life, uh, your goals, your dreams, your ambitions, and then you have to make decisions step by step uh, so that eventually you realize that vision. You get there, of course. It won't happen overnight, uh, as those who remember the Pantene ads. It won't happen overnight, but it will happen, right? If you play the long game, you'll reach uh, your lifetime vision. Now, as Christians, on one level, we can say a hearty amen to that, at that aspect of our culture, right? Where we know uh, that we have to play the long game. In fact, we know we have to play a much longer game. A much longer game. Because for the most part, when our culture says you have to play the long game, uh, they're just talking about this life, aren't they? No concept of eternity. No concept of life going on forever. But in today's passage, John uh, sees this series of visions that pull back the curtain on, on the spiritual realm, on, on these great eternal realities, these destinies. And as we look at these visions, we've got to hear John's call to play the long game. Play the long game. Before we get into the details, let's remember where we left off. Uh, at the end of Revelation chapter 12, right? In Revelation 12, where we saw uh, the beginning of this cosmic uh, battle between the dragon and his people and the lamb and his people. And we saw that the suffering of the church is caused by nothing less than the furious rage of Satan. That's where we were at a couple of weeks ago. Yes, uh, Christ has defeated Satan. Uh, Satan has been cast out of heaven. But now Satan wants to cause as much damage as possible to God's people. And in Revelation 13, we start to see how Satan is going to try and cause that damage. That's the context. He's going to enlist the help of two beasts. Uh, the first, in verses 1 to 10, uh, there we see the dragon and the sea beast. Have a look there. In verse 11, you'll see, uh, verse 1, rather, you'll see the dragon is, is standing on the shore of the sea. Right, so you remember at the end of chapter 12, the dragon uh, spewed out this torrent of lies, this flood, uh, to try and destroy God's people, uh, but he wasn't successful. Right? Presumably he got that water from the sea. That's the picture here. And so now he's standing by the shore of the sea. God's protected his people from his lies. Uh, and he's thinking, what now? Right? How am I supposed to get at God's people? Uh, so he calls up some helpers from the sea, from the same place that he came from. Uh, this first uh, beast uh, is a beast that, uh, that represents evil political rulers and governments and movements in our world. That's the first beast. Oh, I say that but because the language here takes us back to Daniel chapter 7. We don't have time to unpack of all of, uh, all of Daniel chapter 7, but uh, if you read Daniel 7 later on, you'll see that Daniel has a vision of four different kingdoms. Uh, probably this is the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks and the Romans, four kingdoms. Uh, And if you read it, you'll see that the first three kingdoms are described as being like a lion, a bear, and a leopard. So have a look in verse uh, 2 of Revelation 13. Uh, That's just like this beast. But but this beast isn't just one of those animals. This beast is a horrible combination of all of them. A horrible combination. So this beast represents evil kingdoms, political rulers, governments, movements uh, in our world. 
And the big thing we've got to know about this beast, uh, which isn't surprising since uh, it's a helper of Satan, is that this beast is a cheap imitation of Christ. It's a parody of Christ. So you see, the, 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 uh, the beast imitates Christ's power. Verse 1, he's got ten horns, seven heads, ten crowns, all symbols of his immense power. His power that, that comes, look in verse 3, his power comes from the dragon himself. Right, Satan is empowering this beast. And look down in verses 7 and 8 where we see that the beast's power is going to affect the whole world. Right? The dragon gives him authority over every tribe and language and nation. Right, so that this beast imitates Christ's power. Right? He, he claims a power, he claims this all authority that really only belongs to Christ, which is what those blasphemous names on his heads are all about, you see. The blasphemy is his arrogant claim that he is king, not the Lord Jesus Christ. His claim that if people want to be saved, if they want to be really secure, if they want to be satisfied, they have to trust and follow and worship him, not, not Christ. So look in verse 6. Right, The beast opens its mouth to, to blaspheme God, to, to slander God and his dwelling place. Right, God's dwelling place, that, that's his heavenly throne. This beast declares that he is king, not God. This beast resents God. Look in verse 7. Because he resents God, he wages war against God's people. He resents anyone whose primary allegiance is to someone other than him. To God instead of him. So the beast imitates Christ's power. It makes these blasphemous claims to be king. And like Christ, it has this incredible comeback story. So that people are amazed by it. Looking at verse 3, uh, the beast has what looks like a fatal wound on its head, but it's alive, right? It's healed. It's this incredible story. You know these leaders, these influential people, you've seen them in the world. Uh, it's an amazing comeback story. Either this guy was left for dead. Incredible. That's what the beast like. The whole world's enamored, enamored with the beast. What an amazing comeback story. He's back from the dead. Uh, so much so that they worship him. Who is like the beast? Who can wage war against him? This beast represents evil political rulers, governments, uh, even uh, movements in our world. Any situation where a single human being, a group of human beings, are claiming a position that really only God should have. Claiming that if people want to be saved, if they want to be satisfied, if they, if they really want to be secure, they've got to trust and follow and worship them, not the Lord Jesus Christ. Uppermost in John's mind in his day, of course, it was the Roman Empire. The, 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 the emperor blasphemously claiming that he was God, demanding that the people in all parts of the empire worship him. But of course we've seen this kind of pattern throughout history on both sides of politics. But on the extreme left of politics, the communists say, what do they say? They say, the state is God. So if you want to be saved, you have to trust and follow and worship the state and the supreme leader of the state. Think Fidel Castro. Think Stalin. No, fascism on the extreme right is no better. Think Nazi Germany, Hitler, Mussolini, right? The state is God. If you want to be saved, if you, if you want to be secure, you have to trust and follow and worship the state, worship the supreme leader of the state. Your allegiance is to him and his government. Both paths and many in between are thoroughly evil. They're the work of this beast, John is saying. 
They're trying to elevate human rulers and authorities to a position that only God should have. So how do we respond? We, we, we have to be alert to this. The dragon is powerful, the beast is powerful, and the evil rulers they raise up will be very powerful. They'll lead many astray, we're told. And let's remember, it's not that human government in and of itself is evil. Right? Read Romans 13, it says it's a gift from God. But what does the evil one do? Right? As he does with all God's good gifts, he distorts the good gift of government. He perverts it. And often he's successful so that we have leaders who instead of humbly submitting to God's rule, proudly assert their own rule. I'm king of the world. We have leaders who see themselves uh, not as humble servants of the people, but see the people as humble servants of theirs. There to stroke their ego, to build their kingdom, to adore them. So they become beastly like the one who empowers them, oppressive, as they demand that people trust and follow and worship them. But well, we have to be alert to this. Oh, but we shouldn't be alarmed, should we? Oh, we know who's really king. Now, there's hints of that in this passage. Right? For example, we know where the wound on the beast's head came from. You remember that? Like it came from Christ. Right? We saw that back in chapter 12. Through his death and resurrection, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ has struck a fatal blow, not just to the beast, but to all his servants. They've been cast out of heaven. So this beast is wounded, fatally wounded, dying. But in Christ's wisdom, which oh, I don't really understand, but in his wisdom, he's healed the beast for a limited time. So in verse 5, we see that the beast and his beastly rulers, they're only going to be around for 42 months. And you remember this number, the same number again, 1,260 days, three and a half years, 42 months. They're all ways of speaking about this whole period between Christ's first and second coming. So we shouldn't be alarmed, John's saying, because Christ is king, and when he returns after 42 months, right? it won't be 43, it won't be 41.75, it'll be 42 months. It's written into, the, into the God's uh, plans for the, the cosmos that Christ will return right when his father plans to destroy the dragon, this beast, and his beastly rulers and all who follow them. It won't last forever, John's saying. Christ is king, and he will put an end to this. And don't be alarmed, John says, because look, verses 8 to 10. If you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Christ, if you persevere in trusting Christ, your salvation is rock-solid secure. Nothing to worry about, but because your name was written in the Lamb's Book of Life before the foundation of the world, never to be deleted. So play the long game. Keep it in perspective. Verse 9. I don't have to unpack, time to unpack all details here, but verse 9. Make sure you've got ears to hear this warning. Verse 10. Persevere in trusting Christ. This calls for patient endurance, John says. Play the long game. Oh, that's the beast from the sea. But in, uh, the dragon's not done. Verses 11 to 17, he calls up uh, this beast from the earth. Uh, it's pretty clear, I don't know if you caught this, but it is pretty clear that this beast is an ally of the first beast. If you look in verse 12, uh, it says that this beast exercises all the authority of the first beast. Uh, so once again, it's no surprise that this beast is a cheap imitation of Christ. 
the beast represents uh, this beast represents false religion false prophets false teachers are uh, all uh, opposed to Christ the true prophet uh, so in verse 11 uh, we see that the beast has two horns like a lamb the beast seems like Christ until you listen to it it speaks like a dragon its words are manipulative and deceptive and destructive. And the aim of this beast, uh, represented by, by all false teachers, uh, is to create a system of religion, a form of spirituality uh, that leads people to worship the first beast. Like that might mean that they literally worship the state or, or the supreme leader of the state, or it could just mean that they worship the power and glory and prestige of human beings rather than God. They're so consumed with themselves, with other human beings. That's this beast's aim. So in verse 13, like Christ and the other great prophets, uh, empowered by the dragon, the beast performs miracles. Miraculous signs, signs and wonders. Well, we really should note that. right? Uh, many of you have seen uh, who I, what I would label as false teachers for the most part on television screens. And many of them are able to perform signs and wonders. Don't look at the miracles, listen to the message, John's saying. Don't look at the miracles, listen to their message. But lots of people will be deceived, John says. Look, verse 14, they end up worshipping the first beast. Uh, of course, in the immediate context, that, that's talking about the, the real pressure to worship the emperor. The whole cult of worship around that, the state are creating a whole system of temples, of priests, of sacrifices, all designed to get people to worship the emperor. John's saying, don't give in to that. But most people did. It was the same back in Daniel chapter 3. You can read that later on. Remember, Nebuchadnezzar constructs a gold statue of himself and demands that people worship it. And most people do, except Daniel and his friends. Uh, we see a similar pattern in political movements uh, really throughout history. A leader is raised up, a kind of charismatic leader, a persuasive leader, a manipulative leader, and they kind of whip people in, into some sort of frenzy uh, to the point where they go along with this leader's ideas seemingly without thinking. Uh, this kind of political movement really becomes a, a pseudo-religious movement. Uh, so the leader can say, they'll say something like this, that the problem with our country, with our world, is this particular group of people. The Jews, the Christians, the Muslims, the communists, the capitalists, the, the indigenous people of this land, the immigrants, the, the people who voted against same-sex marriage, right? Those people are the problem. So the solution is to censor them. Right? To, to, to marginalise them, to exclude them, to persecute them, or perhaps even to kill them. That's what happens here, verse 15. Anyone who refuses to worship the beast will be killed, John says. And he says it will be clear who refuses to worship the beast because the state's keeping track. They've got their means. Verses 16 and 17, everyone who does worship the beast receives the mark of the beast, a sign that they follow him, that they belong to him, that they've bought into his way of thinking. Uh, what do we make of this mark being 666? There's a lot written about that. You could Google it and come up with all sorts of wacky kind of stuff. Right, 666. Uh, 
here's what I think. Uh, we know that the beast is primarily concerned with exalting himself. He's consumed with his own glory. As a mere human being, he wants to assume a position that only God should have. Right, so he, and it's all about creating a society uh, uh, where everything is thoroughly human-centered, where everyone is, is consumed by their own glory. Uh, so what day were human beings created on? They were created on day six, right? That day's all about human beings. That's exactly what the beast wants. A world that's all about human beings and their glory. 666. It's symbolized by this mark. Now, not everyone who refuses to worship the beast is killed, right? That, that's clear. You see there in verse 17, uh, some are just placed under all sorts of other pressures. Socially, economically, uh, John says that they're, they're banned from buying and selling. This practice. And I think we're starting to see bits and pieces of this in Australia. Even here in, in the city of Darwin. Right? We're starting to see that if you're not willing to go with the flow of culture, you'll be excluded. Some of us here have felt that kind of personally, informally, as we've had relationships that have fallen apart. But during the same-sex marriage debate, the Darabin City Council tried to make all that official, didn't they? They went on record saying that all speech for the No campaign was discriminatory and homophobic. They warned local churches not to campaign against same-sex marriage. They uh, allowed yes campaigners to use council uh, services and facilities for free and tried to, quote-unquote, blacklist no campaigners. Now, I know, in the end, they backed away from a bunch of those things because some lawyer told them that they'd you know, get hauled up to the High Court and all that kind of thing. But you see the trend, isn't it? It's the state saying, we are God, we say what's right and wrong, and if you're not willing to toe the party line, we'll do everything we can to stamp you out. And the big question is, where do you draw the line with stamping out? Well, where do you draw the line with that? Like maybe there's some, like it starts with censoring people. We don't like what you're saying, so we'll stop you. Or what about suing people? That okay, I mean, you've got to stamp this sort of view out, right? Imprisoning them, perhaps killing them. I mean, that's the ultimate expression of stamping out. Like, we're not there in Australia, right? But John wants us to, to be warned by these things. Some of that could be coming here in Australia. Oh, I don't know if it'll be in my lifetime, but I, I think we have to prepare our kids. We have to disciple them well. How do we stand firm? How do we not get sucked in by the rhetoric, persuasive rhetoric of political leaders, of some so-called Christian leaders? Well, it's verse 18. Look in verse 18. We have to exercise wisdom and insight, discernment. How is it uh, that a banker finds it so easy to pick out fake money? How do they do that? It's because they spend their whole life immersed with the real thing. They're counting it all day, every day. They can just spot it from a mile away. In the same way, if we don't want to get sucked in by the, the, the false words of these false leaders, uh, whether they be political or spiritual, our lives have to be immersed in the truth of God's word. If that's the case, we'll be much more adept at picking out the fakes and not getting sucked in. 
That's how we stand firm. To the, against this second beast, we exercise wisdom and insight by the truth of God's word. Uh, to encourage us to do that, look, uh, in chapter 14, uh, God gives John a series of visions. Uh, these visions show us the destiny uh, of those who stand firm and persevere with the Lamb and his people and the destiny of those who follow the dragon and his people. So in broad terms, that's what we're doing. So in verses 1 to 5, we see the Lamb and his people. Right, verse 1, John sees Christ, uh, the Lamb of God, and he's standing on Mount Zion. And Mount Zion, that, that, that's another way of speaking about uh, God's heavenly dwelling place. He, he's the place where he rules from his throne. And what did we see last week? We saw that Christ, chapter 12, verse 5, Christ, the Lamb of God who was slain, has been snatched up to God's heavenly throne where he lives and reigns in glory. This is a picture of Christ in all his glory, the exalted lamb. And John's saying, that is the destiny of the lamb. Yes, he suffered. Yes, he was slain. But now he lives and reigns in glory. And if you stick fat with him, you'll share in his glory. Right? That's what uh, the 144,000 are about. We saw this back in chapter 7. If you want this in more detail, listen to my sermon on chapter 7. But the 144,000 here represents all of God's people. Every single one of them, everyone who's refused to bear the mark of the beast because they know they belong to Christ. Notice what name they bear. Not the, not the name of the beast, but the name of Christ and his father's name. They belong. Yeah, we, we sang in that song, uh, what is it? Lord, Lord of the ages. No one can, can take his little ones out of his hands. They're marked, you're marked, you're sealed with the name of Christ, with the name of your heavenly father. So as Christ's people, we probably will suffer now. But one day we'll reign with him in glory. That's the, the kind of... Oh, and there's another note here. Uh, we'll probably experience a whole bunch of sorrow now. But look at those harps. Right, the harps there are a symbol of joy. I remember in Psalm 137, uh, Israel is in exile in Babylon. And they say, we hung our harps up in the willows. Well, this is a time of sorrow. We're not where we belong. We're not at home. We, we, we can't get a harp out. Right? But, but now that people are at the, in their home with the lamb, that's a perfect time to get the harps out. It's a time of overflowing joy. Right? As Christ's people, we might be excluded. We might be restricted or oppressed now in this life. But one day we'll be free. Right, singing this new song that John uh, talks about here, about the glorious freedom, the redemption that we have in Christ. Right, if you're a Christian, this is your destiny. Eternal freedom and glory and joy. And, and John wants us to think, play the long game. Set your sights on this glory. And you can do that by committing yourself to the lifestyle of verses 4 and 5. Have a look, chapter 14, verses 4 and 5. I commit to being faithful to Christ. Right, verse 4, this picture of marriage, that the church is the bride of Christ, that our calling is to be devoted to Christ as our bride, to, to, to be pure as our bridegroom, brother. Right, to be devoted to him. Don't, don't defile yourself with the gods of this world. Give the love of your heart to the Lord Jesus Christ. Be faithful to Christ. Commit to following him where he leads. Right, so just as he offered his life up as a sacrifice to, to God, we're to offer our lives up in response to his sacrifice 
as a sacrifice to God. That's what the language of first fruits is about. The first fruits in the Old Testament, the, the first fruits of the harvest were offered to God because they belonged to Him. They were His. Right, so, so the vision here is saying that, that our lives belong to God, bought by the precious blood of Christ, so we offer them to God. Commit to being faithful to Christ, to, to, to following Him where He leads, and to being formed into His likeness. In Isaiah 53, Christ, the Lamb of God, uh, he's described as having no deceit in his mouth. So look, in verse 5, uh, we as his people uh, are to have no lies in our mouth. Or they, they, these, these are the ones who overcome, who are victorious. They're, they're, they're people who, uh, who remain committed to the truth, who are people of integrity, who stand firm on the truth of the gospel. Uh, not like the people of the dragon, who, who's the father of lies. So that's the destiny of the Lamb and His people. Suffering now, glory later. Temporary suffering, eternal glory. Of course, in the rest of chapter 14, we see that it's very different for the dragon and his people. Very different. Sure, they might experience a bit more glory now, a bit more power and pleasure and prosperity, but later they'll experience this horrendous suffering. Verse 6, John sees an angel. The angel's been sent to proclaim God's eternal gospel. It's pretty clear from the rest of the chapter, though, that the focus here is not so much on the good news of the gospel, is it? It's on the bad news, the, the, the news of God's judgment. That's what's being announced, declared. So in verse 7, the angel calls out to all who live on the earth. Right? That's, that's code for people from every tribe, language, and nation who've been worshipping the beast. They've made their home on earth rather than in the heavens. And the angel says, fear God and give him glory. But they don't listen. They don't listen. They're followers of the beast. They're too consumed with living for their own glory and worshipping themselves. They won't give glory to their creator. So in verse 8, another angel says, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. In Daniel chapter 4, uh, King Nebuchadnezzar, he, he's out on his, uh, the roof of his palace looking over the, the great kingdom of Babylon. And he says, Is not this Babylon the great, which I have built for the glory of my majesty? Right? Ba Babylon the great here is a symbol of rebellious humanity, rebellious rulers, rebellious governments who are consumed by exalting themselves rather than God. They want to lift themselves up. So what's God going to do? The angel says, Babylon the great will fall. You've sought to lift yourself up. God will bring you down. And this is going to happen for the vast majority of people because look at verse 8. Uh, they've been drinking it. It's like they're intoxicated on the wine of Babylon. That's a picture. They're kind of drunk on the pursuit of power and pleasure and glory. They just can't see the bigger picture. They're all over the shop. Exactly what the beast wanted them to do. So verses 9 and 10, a third angel announces that everyone who continues to worship the beast, they'll taste not just the, the, the wine of Babylon, but the wine of God's fury. And we're told that when they drink that wine, uh, they'll be tormented with burning sulfur. Horrible picture. 
pretty common picture of hell. Well, I say I say picture because I'm not sure that we're supposed to take the, these pictures literally. I'm not sure that they'll literally be burning sulfur in hell, just as I'm not sure they'll literally be streets paved with gold in heaven. Right? That's not to minimize things, right? because what we've got in the Bible is attempts to capture in human words and pictures uh, these incredible, uh, the incredible sufferings of hell and the glories of heaven. And those eternal realities really are indescribable. It's hard to capture them. But what's clear from this passage is that hell is real and God will send people there and it will be a place of eternal suffering. And some of you might think, well, a loving God would never do that. I just can't kind of abide this idea, but, but well, let's think about it. Let's think about it in, in this way a little bit. Uh, the Bible says that it's when we live a God-centered life, a God kind of glorifying life, that we'll be truly human. We won't become beastly like those who follow the beast. We'll be truly human. And we'll be whole. We'll flourish. We'll be integrated as human beings. Right? But for those who follow the dragon and his beast, they live a self-centered, self-glorifying life. The complete opposite. So instead of being whole people, flourishing people, instead of being well integrated, they start to disintegrate. In this life, that happens. Self-centeredness leads to competitiveness. It leads to bitterness. It leads to envy. It leads to anger. Jealousy, strife, disunity. It's like the life of the person is being twisted and distorted and disintegrated from the inside. And here we see that what the Bible calls hell is that process of disintegration going on forever. The process that people have freely chosen. People have chosen it and God actively affirms it. Hence the image of fire, because what does fire do? Fire disintegrates things, tears things apart. And so the destiny of self-centered, self-glorifying dragon and his people uh, is a little bit of glory now and eternal suffering later. Are verses 14 to 20 describe that home? Verse 14, Christ is described not as the Lamb of God, but he's the Son of Man. Daniel 7, he's the true king. He's got all authority. He comes on the clouds of heaven to establish his kingdom, his eternal kingdom, his perfect kingdom. But to establish his perfect kingdom, he has to get rid of all evil. So he comes with a sickle. His father's told him that the harvest is ripe for judgment. So verses 17 to 20, there's a horrible picture, really, of that judgment in many ways, as we, as we think about those we know and love who don't know Christ. These angels take their sickles, they, they gather the ripe grapes into the wine press of God's wrath, and they're crushed, trampled. It's comprehensive. Uh, that's what the pictures of the that, that's what the horses bridle and the 1600 stadia are about. We can talk about the specifics of that, but it's really just saying that the Christ's judgment here is full, it's final, it's fierce. No one will escape. So the destiny of the Lamb and His people: temporary suffering now, eternal glory later. The destiny of the dragon and His people: temporary glory now, but eternal suffering later. We see a mixture of both those themes in the start of chapter 15. 
Oh, you see them both there. On the one hand, in verse 1, the seven angels with seven plagues are about to pour out the seven bowls. Uh, Dan will talk more about this next week, but this is the, the final expression of God's... Uh, two weeks in time. Uh, the final expression of God's judgment. And then in verses 2 to 4, we've got this glorious picture of the Lamb and His people. Right, so we've got uh, this talk of Moses and the Lamb and the sea that's supposed to take us back to the book of Exodus in the Old Testament where God redeemed his people from the beastly rule of Pharaoh by the blood of a sacrificial lamb. So in Exodus 15, what did they do? They sang a new song under Moses' leadership to their God. So that's what John's, the vision's drawing on here. Here we see that, that we who've been redeemed, not just from the beastly rule of Pharaoh, but from all beastly rulers, from the beast itself, from the dragon behind the beast, we've been redeemed by the blood of Christ, the ultimate lamb of God. So we sing a new song to our glorious God. Uh, so how do we uh, draw all this together? Well, I've got this uh, illustration that might help. Uh, some of you will have seen this. Can someone see the red bit? Should have thought about this in advance. Pop that in my hand. Wonderful. Uh, yeah. So some of you might have seen this. Uh, Fran a guy named Francis Chan uh, uh, has done it a few times. But I guess I just want you to imagine for a moment uh, that this rope here, uh, which I'll throw out down the, the aisle, spectacularly <laughs> not quite so but this is what you got trainees for thanks Paul can you run that run that all the way down right so uh, I want you just to imagine that this rope uh, isn't just 15 meters long but it's actually goes on forever and ever forever and ever and ever uh, it represents eternity right it represents the eternal realities that this passage has put before us and what we've seen today oh wait this red bit on the end is your life. All right, so so uh, in the scheme of eternity, it's just, it's just a, a blip on the radar. It, it, James says uh, it's a mist that's here one moment and gone the next. That, that's your life right there. And what does the, the dragon and the beast want to do? They want to convince you to get as much glory and power and pleasure and prestige as possible in that red bit. Live for this. Play the long game. You set a glorious vision for your life and you will get there and it's going to be spectacular. In that red bit, you'll be eaten a bit. Right? It's going to be great. Forget about eternity. Forget about ultimate realities. Right? That's what our culture calls playing the long game. It's a lie. It's an absolute lie. Sure, you'll experience some glory now, but you'll experience eternal suffering later. We have to play the longer game. Don't get sucked in by the beast. Walk with Christ, the Lamb of God. Embrace the path of temporary suffering now so we can enjoy eternal glory later. I don't wait for the red bit, but for the whole thing. Let's pray. Uh, gracious Heavenly Father, uh, we do thank you for your word uh, that uh, so often we live our lives and we sort of get our blinkers on. Uh, we, we lose sight of these great eternal realities. Uh, Father God, uh, please open our eyes afresh to these eternal realities today by the power of your Spirit uh, in your Word and help us to embrace the path of temporary suffering now following in the footsteps of Christ our Lord, the Lamb who was slain, uh, that we might share in his eternal glory later. Help us to stand firm, to exercise wisdom and insight 
uh, to persevere in trusting our Lord Jesus. Uh, for his glory we pray. Amen.